0: invite you to turn in your your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 34 for this morning's Old Testament lesson. It's an important passage that we uh, find uh, that is uh, quite critical in the life and juncture of the history of the people of God. Exodus chapter 32 to 34 recount uh, Moses's dealings, or perhaps we should better say the Lord's dealings with Moses at the top of Sinai. As Moses now has been given the law and descends Uh, with the law etched in stone, now with his face shining like the sun. It's an incident and a moment in the history of Israel that Paul will focus on for the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so I think it would do us well to give heed uh, to this uh, portion of Scripture. Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 through 35. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you, and with Israel. And so he was with the Lord there for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, turning with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, This morning's sermon text will focus on verses 4 to 11, but uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1 for a broader context. Here, Paul begins or continues uh, to delineate that difference between uh, that covenant of grace that was given to the people of God through Moses, and now this covenant of grace that has been given through the Lord Jesus Christ, a new and a better covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory This is God's holy word. Let's go before him and pray uh, that he would bless the reading and preaching of it. Gracious God and most merciful Father, we do thank you that you have uh, not left us in the dark, but that you have given us a light shining in darkness. Your word that declares the redeeming grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. These waters that we are treading in are deep waters. And so we confess we cannot understand what your word so clearly teaches unless your spirit opens our eyes to see those wondrous things found in your law. And so we pray that you'd bless not only the reading of your word this morning, but the preaching of it, that we might be diligent and faithful, not only to believe, but to do all that you've commanded. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. I think it's amazing the number uh, or kind of things that you could find in the back of your own refrigerator. Uh, I remember uh, packing just a few months ago, uh, just outside of Chicago, uh, and having to get a giant garbage can as I had to toss out so many things that I found on the back of my fridge, things that I don't even remember purchasing, uh, all these things that were good uh, and delicious at one point, uh, but if I tried to eat them then, uh, they would prove to be terribly Lethal. What would you do if a a traveling salesman tried to sell you meat that had expired three months ago? Hopefully you wouldn't take a lick of it. And yet this is the case that we see with Corinth. False teachers have moved in selling expired goods. And Corinth has failed to recognize the expiration date on these goods. They've, as a result, failed to discern between the good and the rancid, and something that would eventually lead to their very destruction if Paul does not intervene and show them the error of their ways. This is what Paul is arguing here in uh, this really dense portion uh, of Scripture. We're going to take it in three chunks as we consider. First, verses 4 to 6, as we might call it, Paul's ministerial sufficiency. Then verses 7 to 8, we'll consider Moses' lesser glory And then in verses 9 to 11, we will consider the Spirit's greater glory. So Paul's sufficiency as a minister of the gospel, Moses' lesser glory, and the Spirit's greater glory. If you recall, what we've seen over the past few weeks as we've been making our way through 2 Corinthians is that Paul's credentials have been called into question. At the very least, his competency as a minister has been called into question. And Paul's been asking this question, he's been driving home the issue, how do you know that I am bona fide? How do you know that I'm legitimate? How do you know that I uh, am not a snake oil salesman? How do you know that I'm not a charlatan? And Paul's answer, as we saw last week, was very simple. Look at the work of the Spirit in your hearts. You're our letter of recommendation. You are the proof in the pudding. You're the evidence that the Spirit is at work in this church. With great confidence I could say this before God, he says here in verse 4, that the Spirit is at, indeed at work in your hearts and lives. We have such confidence through the Messiah towards God. And so for three chapters, Paul has begun to highlight the nature of pastoral ministry under the new covenant. It's a ministry that is marked both by integrity and frailty. It's a ministry that is characterized by both sincerity and suffering. Paul likens himself to a prisoner of war on a death march, the end of chapter 2, heralding Christ's conquest over him, the conquest conquest of Christ at Calvary. It reminds us, and as Paul's repeated uh, refrain that we see here in this letter, that the message of the cross shapes not only the message, but the messenger. And Paul's very suffering, his afflictions, his troubles, Are not proof that uh, he is acting outside the will of God, but it shows that he's being conformed into the likeness of his Savior. You think of such a heavy burden that this would create for the minister. Paul asks this question at the end of chapter 2. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who is able to bear under the weight of such a cross? Who would even be willing to take up this ministry were he not called I think many of us have an answer rattling in our minds. Uh, It seems to be somewhat of a rhetorical question, who is sufficient to bear these things? I think many of us would say right off the bat, well, nobody is sufficient to bear these things. And I would say that that B plus, (laughs) it's a good answer. But what we see here is Paul actually answers in a slightly different tenor. You see this here in verse 5. He doesn't say that nobody is sufficient. Look at Paul's answer we are sufficient. Speaking of Paul and the apostles and the missionaries that have gone with Paul, we are sufficient for these things. You think, whoa, Paul, <laughs> let's have the breaks here. Don't get too cocky. Do You have too high of an estimate on yourself. I want to notice the way that Paul delineates his answer. This is not a gesture of feigned humility. Nor is this a boast in self-confidence. Paul is not saying, oh, look, at the skill set that I have, surely I'm able to do this. In fact, that's the very thing that his opponents are boasting in, is their own ecstatic experiences, their own rhetorical skills. Paul says, that's not what qualifies me. I'm sufficient, but it's not because of my own Deeds. It's not because of my works. It's not because of my own gifts or lack thereof. Notice how he answers. He says, not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves. Rather, God has made us sufficient. Notice that. He's not pretending that, that he's not qualified. He's actually saying, God has actually qualified me to do this. He has called me and set me apart There's no um, uh, feigned humility here. There's a real humility, but there's also a real recognition that the Lord has, in fact, called me, Paul says. That's how he begins every letter, isn't it? Paul, an apostle by the will of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a a self-confidence that results in boasting. Rather, this is a God-centered confidence that drives and empowers Paul's ministry. And what we find is this is not a new pattern. This is a pattern that we find replete throughout the whole of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That whenever God calls a man to the ministry, He often does so in light of the man's own weaknesses. Now, of course, we recognize that God uses means, as we all have been called to various vocations. God has given each of us particular gifts and skill sets. You would never have me be a banker because I'm so terrible with numbers. I don't think anybody should say, well, because you're terrible at numbers, therefore you should be a banker. It's just not how it works in daily vocations. You know, the, the Lord gives us those gifts and graces needed to fulfill those, those daily tasks in our life. God does use means, but so often when we look at the work of the ministry, God works apart from means as well, and he does it here for a very purpose. You consider Moses, for instance, uh, when, when the Lord called Moses in uh, the opening chapters of Exodus to be God's mouthpiece, to be God's spokesman. What's Moses' response? I have a stuttering problem. I'm a man of slow speech. Get my brother to do it. Please don't have me. Terrified of the crowds, as it were. And yet Moses becomes the man of God, the one who is the friend of God, faithful in all of God's house, despite his own weaknesses, that he lacks the requisite natural gifts needed to take up this call. You think of Gideon, the commander of the armies of Israel, Called to deliver the people of God from uh, enslavement to their captors. And yet, how do we find Gideon in the book of Judges? Where is he? He's hiding in the bushes. He's a coward. And yet, God calls a coward to lead 300 men into victory. You think of Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, the one who speaks of the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah's most. Beloved phrase concerning our great and triune God, the Holy One of Israel. And yet, when the Lord appears to Isaiah in chapter 6, what is it that Isaiah says? I'm I'm a profane man. I'm a man of unclean lips. Who am I to speak of the Holy One of Israel? You think of Jeremiah, who's called to prophesy a message of judgment and doom against the wise men and the rulers of his day and age. And yet, what is Jeremiah's response? I'm too young. These old people won't hear me. See, what we see time and time again is that God calls and appoints men who are insufficient by their own natural gifts to demonstrate the same truth over and over again. And over again, that it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. If God simply called Winston, you know, every minister who is called ends up being kind of their own Winston Churchill, so to speak. Then it would give a reason for every minister to boast. Ah, oh, perhaps the church is growing because I'm such a good public speaker. And yet, that's not how the Lord operates. The Lord operates to demonstrate that it is through the weakness of his ministers. The only reason that there is any type of growth and maturity is that it is because the Spirit, of the living God, is at work. And the same is true with Paul. We think of Paul as being, you know, the, uh, the apostle par excellence, the guy with the Superman logo and a tattoo to his chest, so to speak. And yeah, Paul makes it clear over and over again. Even his detractors say, and Paul does not disagree with him, I have such a weak stage presence. And yet this is the appointed apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's point is that he has been commissioned by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's what happened at the road to Damascus. And Corinth is the living letter. Corinth is the proof of Paul's call. Of course, the implication, as we will see as uh, this argument unfolds in the coming chapters, is that there are these super apostles who have weaseled their way into the church. These men who are phonies, who despite uh, all visible appearances to the contrary, are men who are not called by God. They, they meet all the basic requirements of what the world would consider to be a great leader. Great politicians. They have these wonderful spiritual uh, mountaintop experiences uh, they 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 have the command of the room when they speak, and yet Paul says, Fine, I don't have a strong stage presence. I admit that, sure, I suffer immeasurably, but these things do not disqualify me. See the question is not what qualifies me, but who, and God is the one who has made me sufficient to be a minister. Of the new covenant despite my works against my own natural gifts I'm not sufficient in my own abilities but God has made me sufficient to be this minister of the new covenant verse 6 and now Paul says that in fact this is a covenant which brings something better than even Moses himself offered that's a tall order Moses, the greatest man of the Old Testament, and and if you read some of the old uh, rabbinical literature, Moses was considered to be even greater than the angels. Paul says, through this ministry, this ministry of weakness and suffering, this proclamation of the cross, something better has come than even what Moses could offer as he descended from the heights of Sinai. Here, Paul brings into view the events of Exodus, chapters 32 to 34, where the Lord had given the law to Moses and inscribed it on stone tablets. As we heard part of the story last week, we know that this covenant only went skin deep and never made its way to the heart. As throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there's the repeated exhortation, circumcise your hearts, inscribe these words on your heart. And you know, Israel not only refuses to do so, she is unable to do so. As Moses descends and the the glory of God is shining uh, uh, off of his face like the sun, he finds Israel enmeshed in gross sin and sexual immorality and idolatry. These acts that characterize the life of the nation not just for this generation, but all the way up to the exile itself. That this is a nation that is hard-hearted. That this is a nation that is stiff-necked. That this is a nation that is obstinate. God had given His law etched on tablets of stone, but the law had never made its way into the heart. So, this is what Paul is doing here. Paul is contrasting the ministry of Moses under the old covenant and the ministry of the spirit under the new. And we need to recognize what Paul is not doing here. There's two things that Paul is not doing. If we, if we fail to grasp this, we'll miss the import of what Paul is doing. On the first, uh, on, the, on the one hand, Paul is not denigrating Moses. We see throughout Scripture that Moses is called the friend of God. Hebrews chapter chapter 3, Moses was the faithful servant over all of God's house. So Paul is not grunting like a caveman saying, Moses bad, Paul good. On the other hand, Paul is not denigrating the law of Moses either. You read Romans chapter 7. Paul speaks of the holiness of the law. The law declares the righteous character of God. It is holy, it is just, it is good. So Paul is not giving some utterly reductionistic statement that law bad, gospel good. It's not what Paul's doing here. Rather, Paul's point is this, that Moses' ministry was holy, it was just, and it was good. But what was its effect? It was a ministry of condemnation and death. It's bad news for sinners, but that's what the law does. It exposes the reality of the situation we face as we stand in the presence of a holy God. The law says, do this and live. Israel did not do this, and so they died. Israel deserved to die. That does not make the law wicked. That simply confirms the righteousness of the law, and yet it also shows that the law was unable to save. The reality, the comprehensive scope of the law showed Israel's need for a redeemer. The Ten Commandments were etched in stone, but we find they never made their way into the depths of the human heart. It only lay skin deep. The the law did not pulse. It did not course through Israel's veins. The law was heard, but it was not heeded. Not even the sacrificial system could fix the problem. This is what we see in Hebrews 5 to 10 over and over and over again. It's a very similar argument that's being made there as it's being made here. That you have these blood sacrifices that are offered up every morning, showing, uh, as we see in the book of Leviticus, Israel's need for a substitutionary sacrifice. Something sinless had to die in their place. And so the Lord had implemented the sacrificial system, it was a good thing. And yet these sacrifices had to be implemented and made every morning, every evening. Every Sabbath, every festal occasion, every year on the Day of Atonement, every generation as every Levitical priest continues to die because he too is a sinner. And it happens in perpetuity, day after day, after week, after month, after year, after generation, after generation, after generation. So much so that the author of Hebrews simply points to its repetitive nature and says, this demonstrates that the blood of bulls and goats could not reckon with sin once and for all. The law of Moses was good, but it was not perfect. Not saying it was flawed, not saying it was sinful. Rather, it was unable to reckon with the reality of sin at hand. That is Paul's point here. Paul's not saying that Moses' ministry was wicked, but rather that it was inadequate inadequate to reckon with the real problem, that a once-for-all sacrifice for sin was, in fact, needed that something further must be done so that the law could actually make its way to the heart of the believer. That's why we could call uh, the the covenant given under Moses, it is a covenant of grace. While at the same time, the prophets under that covenant will proclaim the day of a new and better covenant that was to come. Such as the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31, as we had read last week, Or Ezekiel himself, who proclaims the same promise that a new covenant is coming, a better covenant. You think of Psalm 110, the the, the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament, written by David himself. Uh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until uh, I make your enemies a footstool. And then the Lord declares to the messianic king, what you are my son. Today I've begotten you as not only the king, but a priest, not according to the order of Levi, but according to a very different order itself an order where the priests don't die, an order where the high priest holds the power of an indestructible life, the order of Melchizedek himself. These are deep waters. But the Old Testament recognized its own expiration date. And Paul is saying the expiration date has come. And now something more lasting, more permanent, more glorious has come Under Moses, the law could only condemn Israel, but it could not change them, right? They were given the gospel in a shadowy form, but the substance was yet to come. So Paul is not saying, again, I need to keep driving this home, Paul is not saying, look how evil Moses' ministry was, and look how much godlier mine is. Rather, the point is, Moses' ministry was great, and for his own day and age, it was the greatest it could ever be. There was none greater but just like Moses' face as it as it shined like the sun as he came down from the top, from the top of mount sinai even as his most faded as his face faded it demonstrated the nature of his ministry that it was fading too that the ministry of moses of moses had an end point and now that christ has come the mosaic system has functioned much like expired milk A new age has been inaugurated, the age of the Spirit, whose ministry will never expire, a ministry that brings greater benefits than the ministry of Moses. Moses had great glory, yes, but compared to the ministry of the Spirit, it is a lesser glory. It's the very point that Paul brings home here in verses 9 to 11. Uh, I don't know how many of you all remember, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago when Windows 95 was released. Uh, the, the, the seismic shift that that caused in, in um, kind of the computer industry this really opened up windows uh, no pun intended uh, for people to have uh, uh, to use uh, home computers uh, to make them more accessible. Uh, and it's something that for people like me who are technologically illiterate, it's really helpful just to have an icon that you can hit on rather than entering in a bunch of code. But you can imagine what it would be like if a, co- a multi-billion dollar corporation tried to run its business on Windows 95 today. Probably crashed the business into the ground. Why? Because something better operating systems have come. Operating systems that are so much better that they, uh, on the one hand, we can't even say are, and compared to, uh, uh, contrast with Windows 95, are incomparable. We can actually say they're incompatible in light of the new advancements made. This is what we see here with the New Covenant. New Covenant is not simply an upgrade uh, to, to, to Windows 95, so to speak. Now that the New Covenant has come, it has rendered the Old Covenant obsolete. It's a defunct program. Something better has come. Again, that is not saying that the Mosaic institution was evil. It was good for its day. But now something better, something far better has come. There are three ways we see here in verses 9 to 11 in which the new covenant surpasses the old covenant in its effectiveness. Well, first is in its effectiveness. Note the repeated comparisons we see here in these three verses. The Old Covenant was written in stone. The result is condemnation and death. But now that the New Covenant has come, it is written not on stone tablets, but it is now written on the human heart. The New Covenant accomplishes what the Old Covenant was not able to do. The New Covenant is written on the heart, which means this, that believers are not merely enabled to keep the law, now, but they have also been, as we'll see in chapter five, constituted righteous as if they have already kept it. So we're going to, this is what we're moving towards, the end of chapter five. For God made him, that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin, to be reckoned a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God both declares us to be righteous. It's a legal act, justification. but then He also makes us righteous. It's a renovative work. That is sanctification. So when we confess together our faith, what are these distinct benefits that we have by the work of the Spirit? It is not just sanctification, but also, uh, it's not just justification where we're declared to be righteous, where we're reckoned as righteous as Christ himself, but we are also made righteous. That's why Paul will say over and over again in his other letters, essentially, be what you are. You have been declared righteous, now walk in that righteousness. The forgiveness of sins is not a a get-out-of-hell-free pass so that you can live life however you want. Rather, if you've been declared righteous, if you've been adopted as a child of the king, then now it is time to act like a son of the king and to bear proper fruit. And now because the Spirit has come, it's not simply a standard that is placed before you saying you are unable to keep it. Now the law is given as a rule of life. Saying because you have the Spirit abiding in you, now because you have the law written on your heart, you are able to walk in these ways in reliance upon the Spirit. Far more effective. That's why the New Testament is still concerned with ethics. In fact, that's why the New Testament really lasers in on the ethics of the Christian life, it doesn't loosen them. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, but now I say to you. There's an intensification of what is required of the people of God because we now have been given the Spirit. Secondly, the new covenant is not only more effective, it is also more permanent. The Old Testament recognized its own expiration date. That sacrificial system that we see put in place by the Lord through Moses, good as it was, shows and demonstrates that it was not able to reckon with what was needed to be reckoned with, the problem of sin itself. That's why we have these uh, repeated sacrifices. That's why we have this whole Levitical order uh, that is given uh, uh, according to a particular tribe because there's the reality that that high priest will sin or does sin uh, and that he too will die. And so somebody has to arise and take his place. And so the Old Testament anticipates Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, so on and so forth. The coming day, not only of a perfect sacrifice, but of a high priest who will live forever. Note the language at the end of Isaiah 53. He who bears our sins, he who, uh, it was the will of the Lord to crush him as he he, uh, bore our sins as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. How does it end? end? It ends with the declaration of his vicarious death on behalf of the people of God. But then it says this, and he ever lives to make intercession for transgressors. Isaiah 53 also anticipates and proclaims that there is a resurrection of this great high priest who will reign on high forever. Now that Christ has come, there's no longer a sacrifice needed for sin. Now that Christ has come, sinners are no longer held back at arm's length as they were at the base of Mount Sinai. Now the New Testament commands us not to stay back, but to draw near with confidence It doesn't even say draw near, but watch your step. Be timid about it. Now we are called to draw near boldly. Such is the confidence that we have towards God through the Messiah. Paul writes here in verse 4. Full and unfettered access to the heavenly throne. And it's an access that we have by faith. By trust that we have a risen Savior who has made full satisfaction for sin. These old sacrifices are no longer needed. Moses' ministry was fading. And now that Christ has come, Moses' ministry has been rendered obsolete. Finally, the new covenant is described to be as uh, not only more effective, not only more permanent, but also more glorious. Moses' face shining as it was after uh, he saw God at the, tops, uh, at the top of Sinai. It faded. It was a fading glory. It's Something that lasted for only a, a little bit of time. But as we make it to the end of chapter 3, you'll see here in verses 16 to 18, Paul will say, but now as we behold Christ under this new covenant, we are now transformed from glory to glory in a likeness that does not fade, but actually a glory that rebounds and redounds all the more. So we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It's not as visible as it was under Moses. Moses' transformation was external as it were, yet fading. Yet under the new covenant, you can't see it as you could under the old, but it's of a greater glory. We'll talk about that more next week, what that means. This is a greater glory that transforms the inner man, unseen to the naked eye, and yet it is a more glorious ministry than a mere glory under Moses that transformed just the externals. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, my, my dad had this, uh, uh, this beautiful uh, Ford Ranger. It was a stick shift. I loved it. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, uh, purchasing a, a, an owner's manual uh, just to, to, to read my way through it, pretending like I knew something how mechanics actually worked. Uh, I basically was able to find out where the clutch was. Uh, that's basically all I was good for. But at least I had this owner's manual that, that I would read through and, and work my way through, try to work my way through, at least carry it around with me in my backpack. And I remember a few months later, uh, my dad ended up giving me Uh, After I'd gotten my driver's license, my dad had given me that uh, that Ford Ranger. So I want to ask this, put this question to you, which was uh, better, getting the driver's manual or getting the car itself? I think we would all recognize that both are important. Both serve their own particular purposes. But you can't drive an owner's manual. You need to know how the car works in order for you to drive it so there's a purpose for the owner's manual. But the car itself is far more glorious. The Mosaic Law is something like the owner's manual. It's the schematic that demonstrates what was needed for communion to be uh, restored between man and God. It's a very good thing. Yet, being able to drive the vehicle is far better. And that's what we're given in the New Covenant. We're not just given a schematic as the people of Israel were under the Old Covenant. Now we're given Christ himself. Christ the substance. And yet here is Corinth contenting themselves with lesser things. Celebrity preachers trying to sell them a tattered owner's manual to a defunct Pinto when Paul is giving away the new Tesla Model X for free. That's the difference of what Corinth is facing And yet, because Corinth has failed to to grasp uh, the message of the cross, they're unable to discern what is lasting from what is fleeting. They're unable to discern what is lasting from what has become obsolete. The super apostles, as Paul will call them, have sold them expired milk. And if if Corinth is not careful, then what they are consuming will, in fact, kill them. Considered a case of spiritual botulism. I think we face a similar problem today. The message of the cross reminds us that things are not as they appear to be. The ethics of the cross are topsy-turvy according to worldly standards. In April 1518, Martin Luther gave a series of lectures in the city of Heidelberg. It's known as the Heidelberg Disputation. Where he contrasts two types of theologians. He calls, on the one hand, one the theologian of glory. And on the other hand, he calls the other type of person, the theologian of the cross. He says the theologian of glory acts something like this. They reckon all things according to human wisdom. So when they consider what human power is, let's say in uh, invested in the power of a king, when they consider who God is, they just simply see God as being a bigger version of human power. As if he were some, you know, uh, a form of the jolly green giant. Like us, only bigger. When they speak of wisdom, they consider the wise men of the age. And they reckon God to be simply a wiser version of them. They have crafted God into their own image. And so what is it that they look for? It leads the theologian glory to look for the great and the powerful. According to worldly standards, according... To the, to the wisdom of the sage. Yet because of that, they have failed to recognize, because they have failed to see the cross. They fail to see how God works. They measure success according to worldly standards of success. They judge according to external features. Much like these celebrity preachers were looking at Moses' ministry, going, "Ah, oh, look at how the light shined off of his face. We just got to take us back there. We got to take us back to Sinai. Paul had already told Corinth the cross inverts all of these. This is what Luther means by the theologian of the cross that he sees God as revealed through the cross, so that it is through the foolishness of preaching that the wisdom of God is to be found so that it is through the weakness and suffering of Christ on the cross that the power of God is demonstrated, so that, this is 1 Corinthians 1, that the foolishness, foolishness of God is seen to be wiser than the wise, uh, uh, the wise men of this age. So that the weakness of God is shown to be of even greater power than even the, the greatest uh, strong man of this age. And yet if we fail to see the cross, then we fail to recognize how it is that God is at work That God works through the foolishness of preaching. God works through the suffering of ministers and the suffering of believers to demonstrate his resurrection power. How is it that we assess thriving churches and ministry these days? Is it by their swelling numbers? How do we appraise Christian faithfulness? Is it by the amount of cultural clout that we hold in a community? Is it by the number of seats of Christians that we have occupying positions of political power? i not saying that those are necessarily bad things. It's okay to be a believer and to serve in positions of government. But is that how we measure Christian success? To do so would be to measure all things according to human wisdom, to reckon according to appearances. What Paul is driving at here is that these things are not qualifiers for faithful Christian service. It's a good thing if, that, if, a, if a nation has that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Christians aren't being faithful and they're not doing and walking in all God's ways if they're the persecuted minority. Christian success is not measured by those outward things. Rather, it is by simple faithful obedience to the cross. It is by bearing under the cross. It is by suffering under the cross. And it is by boasting in nothing but the cross For it is only under the cross that the resurrection power of God will be made manifest. It is only when we are brought to the end of our own abilities that Christ will demonstrate His own sufficiency in the midst of His people. It's true not just for ministers, but it's true for the Christian life. We must remember that the cross is not only a message to be preached, but it is a life to be embraced. As Christ called us, that anyone who wants to follow Him must take up their cross also daily and follow Him. It's vowing a life of suffering and weakness, of daily dying to our own desires and wants and pleasures. Outwardly, it looks less glorious than what the celebrity preachers might tell us about having our best lives now. But inwardly, what we find here is a message that is far more effective, a message that is far more permanent, and a message that is far more glorious because it finally gets at the heart of the matter that Christ crucified and raised, ascended on high, has given us His Spirit, and it is by His Spirit that our hearts are transformed. Let us pray. Our Gracious God and Father, uh, we do thank You that You have given us the great privilege of enjoying communion with You through the cross, through Christ crucified, but also to know the sufferings of Christ in our own uh, daily trials. That it is through these that we come to know the resurrection power of Christ, and through that, That we are made sufficient to minister Your comfort to those who are likewise suffering. We ask that You would make this a church under the cross. uh, That this would be a church that lives what You have called us to live. That believes what You have called us to believe. For the sake of Christ who has given us Himself. Who has given us His Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.